Hello and welcome to Crosspoint. We are so glad to have you with us today. Here are a few ways you can be involved at Crosspoint. Our first Thursday gathering is on February the 1st at 6.30 p.m. The purpose of this time together is to declare our dependence on God. We will gather together to worship, to take communion, and to pray together over some specific needs in our church. On Sunday, February the 4th, we are offering baptisms in each of our Sunday gatherings. This is a great opportunity to profess your faith in front of friends and family. If you are ready to take that next step of faith in your walk with Jesus, please sign up at the Connection Desk in the lobby or on our website at crosspointcity.com baptism. We are hosting a newcomer dinner on Thursday, February the 8th at 6.30 p.m. The newcomer dinner is the first step for anyone interested in learning more about how they can fit in here at Crosspoint. Join Pastor James and some of our staff for a free dinner and a time set aside simply to help you connect to Crosspoint and take your next steps. You can sign up on our website at crosspointcity.com newcomer or on the Crosspoint app. We are excited about all that God is doing here at Crosspoint. If you have any questions, please stop by the Connection Desk and one of our serve team members will be glad to assist you. Good morning. It's good to see you. If uh, you have a Bible or some kind of device for the Bible app, grab them. And let's go to Mark chapter 14 together. Mark 14. Uh, if you're new to Crosspoint, we've been in a series in the book of Mark for about a year now. We've got four weeks left after today. And so we're in the home stretch. You know, I mentioned this last Sunday, but uh, over the next few weeks, including today, we're really talking about the crux of Christianity. Uh, everything that we believe as Christians hangs on what we're talking about over the next month. And so I really want you to be here. And if you're just now jumping in to Crosspoint, um, don't worry, you're jumping in at a great time. All right, so Mark chapter 14 is where we're going to be today. Uh, this past week, uh, I spent some time walking around our building, asking staff and even some of our serve team members about the most famous court trial they could remember from their lifetime. And uh, some of our more seasoned people, because like how I use that word, seasoned, some of our more seasoned people, they brought up older cases like the Menendez brothers. Uh, somebody mentioned Bill Clinton. Someone brought up Lorena Bobbitt, which I'm just going to leave that alone entirely. <laughs> not going to go there. Uh, then, then some of our younger folks, they mentioned more recent cases like Darren Wilson, the police officer who shot and killed Michael Brown a few years ago in Ferguson, Missouri. Someone mentioned Ross Harris, uh, the dad here in Georgia that left his three-year-old son in a hot car all day while he was at work. But, but the number one answer I got overwhelmingly, mostly from people in my age bracket, was, can you guess? Ah, there you go. See, O.J. Simpson. Uh, by far the most famous court trial from my lifetime. And I know some of you younger people in the room, you don't even know who that is, right? Like, I felt really old when I brought up O.J. And one of our interns looked at me really confused. And she said, is that the basketball guy? No, it's not, and I can't believe it's been that long, right? It's crazy, but, but here's the thing. As dramatic, as intense, as gripping as all those trials were, none of them compares to the trial we're looking at today. Uh, in our passage, we find what is by far the most famous trial in the history of the world, 
the trial of Jesus Christ. And so if your Bibles are already open, we're going to pick up and read about this trial starting in verse 53. Here's what Mark tells us. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even uh, about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst, and he asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So in our text, what we see is Jesus being subjected to the first of two trials. Um, Jesus faced first a religious trial, and then he went through a civil trial. And the reason for the two trials was really simple. These religious authorities that wanted Jesus dead, while they could pronounce the death penalty, they couldn't ex uh, execute it. They, they had no power to exercise capital punishment. Only the Romans who ruled in Israel at this time could execute prisoners. And so if this religious court, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, also known as the Sanhedrin, if they thought someone deserved death, they would conduct a trial to determine guilt and then hand the prisoner over to the Roman authorities for a second trial, and, and then the Roman authorities would basically determine whether or not the, the death penalty was legitimate. And so again, what we see in our text is this crowd that arrested Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane. We learned about this last Sunday. They bring him to the palace of the high priest. His name was Caiaphas. Uh, the council or the court was, was gathered there, and Jesus is subjected to this first trial, the religious trial. Now, what's interesting to me is, is Mark slips in this little note. As Jesus was standing trial inside Caiaphas' house, another trial was going on outside the house at the same time. Uh, this was the trial of Peter. Right, this is interesting, especially if you were here last week. We learned that as Jesus was being arrested, every single one of his disciples abandoned him. In his greatest time of need, they got scared and they left. Well, apparently, Peter had just enough love left in him for Jesus, uh, just enough courage left in him that he decided to follow along, but at a distance, right? And so here he is in the courtyard at, at the high priest's house while Jesus is upstairs under trial. But what we're going to find in just a few minutes is that even this little bit of love and courage Peter had left in him, it would collapse completely as Peter was brought under this trial of his own. But, but just think about this. Here's Jesus, and, and we saw this in the text. He's standing before this religious court, and it becomes obvious very quickly that this trial is rigged in every way imaginable. Judas, one of the 12 disciples, has sold Jesus out to these men who want him dead. Uh, they have him right where they want him. Now all they need is some witnesses to testify against him. 
According to Old Testament Jewish law, the only way you could put a prisoner to death was if two or more witnesses had actually seen the crime take place. And so this religious court, they go out and and they recruit false witnesses to testify against Jesus. I mean, think about how shady that is. You, You think you've been around some shady churches and shady pastors? That's like really shady. These guys go out and and find people who are willing to lie so that they can put a man to death. Some of these people just straight up lie about Jesus, don't tell the truth at all. And then others, as we saw, they bear false witness. They, They take some of his words and they twist them, take them out of context and use them against him. So here they are standing before this religious council and and some of them say, we heard Jesus talk about destroying the temple. He said he was going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem made by hands and in three days he would rebuild another temple not made by hands. A couple things to know on this, that was a serious charge. In the ancient world, destroying a place of worship was a capital offense. You could be put to death for that. The second thing you need to know though is Jesus never said that, ever. In John chapter 2, Jesus does talk about destroying a temple and raising it up in three days, but he's talking there about his own body, but he's referencing his future resurrection. In Mark 13, Jesus predicts the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, which would eventually take place in the year AD 70, but Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. Now, I'm just curious, have you ever experienced anything like that, like somebody lying about you just straight up? Somebody taking your words that that you said completely out of context, twisting them, using them against you. If you've ever gone through that, you know how frustrating it is, right? And all you want to do is stand up and defend yourself and post on Facebook, that's not true at all. I never said that. And, And you want to set the record straight. But what's so interesting to me is that Jesus does the exact opposite. He just stands there with his mouth shut. And he keeps his mouth shut even though everyone in the room know that the testimonies of these false witnesses don't agree. You see, in Jewish trials like his, uh, witnesses had to testify separately and independently. And every detail of their testimony had to match up precisely in order for it to be taken seriously. So at any point, Jesus could have said, come on, guys, this is a joke. It's obvious that they're lying. uh, They're twisting my words. Like you know and and I know and everybody knows that that there's no merit to what these guys are saying about me, but he doesn't. Even when Caiaphas, the high priest, asks him, hey, Jesus, are you going to answer your accusers? He stands there in silence, just like the prophet Isaiah said he would. Some 700 years before Jesus ever came to the earth, Isaiah 53, 7, the Savior, the Messiah, would be afflicted and oppressed, yet he would not open his mouth. Well, it becomes very clear that Jesus' silence frustrates Caiaphas a whole lot. And so he decides to quit playing games, and he just asks very pointedly, Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? What he wants to know is really simple. Jesus, do you really think you're the Messiah? Do you really think that you're the promised king and savior that we've been waiting on? Jesus, do you really consider yourself to be the son of God? And without hesitation, Jesus speaks up and says, that's exactly who I am. You just nailed it on the head, which is very interesting when you think about where we've been throughout the course of this series. That's very different from what we've seen in the book of Mark so far. Uh, If you're newer to Crosspoint and you're not familiar with the Bible, up to this point in the book of Mark, anytime anyone alluded to Jesus's true identity, he basically responded by saying, hey, don't say that too loudly. Cut that out. Don't go and tell anyone about me just yet. Jesus even rebuked demons that he was casting out of people. 
were attempting to identify him before the crowds. And the reason was simple. Like throughout his ministry, Jesus' desire was to reveal himself on his own terms and, his, and on his own timeline. And it becomes very clear from our passage, this was the time. The time had come. Like there was no need to stay quiet about who he was any longer. And so Jesus openly affirms his identity before this religious court. He just straight tells them, look, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. And then he drops this bomb on them. And you guys are all going to see me, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, what Jesus is doing with that powerful statement is he's actually bringing together two Old Testament passages. Psalm 110, Daniel 7, 13. And these passages, they speak to the Messiah's enthronement and his divine right to judge. And I'll make this really easy. Here's what Jesus was saying in this moment. Hey, uh, religious court, you think you guys have the right to rule over me? All you men think you have the, the right to cast judgment upon me? Well, I just need you to know I'm about to be exalted to the highest place of honor and authority in the universe. Like I'm about to be seated on the throne of heaven at the right hand of God the Father. And then there's coming a day when I'm going to come back and all you men are going to stand in judgment before me. And when you stand in judgment before me on that day, you're going to know how wrong you were about who I am. Now, y'all out there at 10 o'clock? Yes? This is some powerful stuff, right? Now, look, I want to stop and just say something here for a moment before we keep going on. This claim from Jesus is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion and belief system in the world. Like, I know people love to suggest at times that all religions worship the same God. No, we don't. We don't. Because no other religion or belief system believes or teaches that Jesus is God. Which means there's a fundamental difference between the God of Christianity and all other false gods that exist. As Christians, we believe Jesus is God. That there is no salvation apart from him. And the simple reason we believe that is because Jesus claimed that about himself. Look, these religious leaders presiding over his trial knew that's what he was claiming about himself. And it's why they responded the way they did. Here's Caiaphas, the high priest. He tears his clothes. Like, just goes Hulk Hogan on himself. It just rips his... It's kind of weird, but this was a sign of outrage in this culture. A sign that he had just heard a blasphemous statement. And then he says to the rest of the Sanhedrin, that man just committed blasphemy. He just slandered God and attacked God by placing himself on the same level as God. What should we do with him? And the rest of the court says, we kill him. We put him to death. According to the Old Testament law, the only proper punishment for blasphemy was death. And listen, it's at this point that the trial ceases to become a trial, or ceases to be a trial, excuse me, and it becomes a riot. These religious leaders of Jesus' day, they start to spit upon him. One of the most insulting things you can do to another human being. They start to beat him. They put a blindfold over his eyes and they punch him in the face and they tell him to prophesy. If you're truly a prophet sent by God, um, you should know who's punching you in the face right now. So why don't you name us? Think about this with me. In doing what they did, these religious leaders become guilty of the very crime of which they accused Jesus. Right? I mean, by accusing Jesus of blasphemy, they're guilty of what? Of blasphemy. They have attacked God. They have denied God. 
And please hear me, anyone today who denies Jesus as God is guilty of this very thing. To say that Jesus isn't God is to commit blasphemy against God. And I know some of us in the room, we might disagree with that. Like you may be here today as the critic, the skeptic, the person who thinks all this is silly and a big waste of time. And if so, I just want to say, man, hey, we love you and we're glad you're in the room today. Um, But I would just say to you, think logically with me about this for a moment, if you will. If you're not a blasphemer, then that means Jesus is, correct? I mean, you can't both be right about who he is. Either he's God or he's not God. And if you say he's not God, then you at at a very basic level are doing what these religious leaders did. You as a human being are standing in judgment over Jesus Christ and condemning him as a criminal deserving of death. This is what's taking place in the religious trial of Jesus Christ. And as I said earlier, as this trial was going on inside Caiaphas' house, another trial was happening outside in the courtyard, the trial of of Peter. I want to show you. Look at verse 66. Pick back up and keep reading. Mark goes on. He says, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So again, here's Peter on trial. He's being questioned about his knowledge of and his relationship with Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus predicted in the text right before this, when we talked about this last Sunday, in case you weren't here, just as Jesus predicted, Peter denies him on three separate occasions. Denial number one takes place when this servant girl of the high priest sees Peter and recognizes him and and says, hey, uh, you were with him. You were with Jesus the Nazarene. And Peter responds with this very common Jewish legal expression, I neither neither know nor understand what you're saying. Sounds like something a politician might say, doesn't it? No offense to any politicians in the room. Just be honest, okay? That's all we ask. Um, I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you're saying. And then, this is interesting, Peter retreats. Uh, He actually moves out of the courtyard into the gateway. It was this covered passageway that led from the courtyard to the street. And what I find really interesting about this is that this retreat, it serves as a physical picture of a spiritual reality. You see, out of fear, here's Peter moving further and further and further away from Jesus. Denial number two happens when this same servant girl says to some of the bystanders who are there, uh, hey, you see that guy over there in the entryway? He's one of them. He was with the guy, Jesus, who's upstairs right now facing his own trial. And again, for a second time, Peter denies Jesus. Now, when you study the word deny in verse 70 in the Greek, you find that the tense of the word implies that Peter kept on denying. Second time he denies, he didn't just go, I don't know what you mean. 
He went, I don't know the guy. I'm telling you, I don't know the guy. I don't know how many ways I can say this. I just don't know him. He used a whole lot of words to deny Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, we even read at this point, Peter used an oath. I swear on my mother's grave, I don't know the guy. And then denial number three comes when, when these bystanders say to Peter, surely you're one of its guys. I mean, it's obvious that you're from Galilee. Uh, Peter's accent would have given him away. Galileans spoke Aramaic, the same dialect that these other people would have spoken, but with a very, very noticeable accent. You know, it's like you as a good southerner going to New York City. And you start talking and people immediately know, hey, you're not from around here, right? Same idea. Peter's accent gave him away. Surely you're one of his guys. And this time in denial number three, Mark tells us that, that Peter invokes a curse upon himself, begins to swear not meaning that he used profanity, but he would have said something like this. If I'm lying about knowing the man, doesn't even say his name, by the way. If I'm lying about knowing the man, may God strike me down and kill me. And as soon as these words come off Peter's lips, he remembers. He hears that rooster crow twice, and he, he remembers it hits him. Oh, my gosh, I just did what Jesus said I would do. And Mark tells us that in this moment, Peter broke down and he just wept. Now, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a place like that, where you did something you didn't even know you were capable of doing. And after doing it, you just sat there and you went, what did I just do? I didn't know I had the ability, the capability of doing what I just did. I imagine that's how Peter felt in this moment. There he is brokenhearted, overwhelmed with shame that he was able to deny his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I think you'd agree, um, if the story were to stop here, it'd be a really depressing story, right? Um, if we closed our Bibles and all went home, it'd be like the worst day of church ever. <laughs> but the good news is, look, the good news is the story doesn't stop here, not for Jesus and not for Peter. In fact, Jesus goes on to do some incredible things in Peter's life after his denial. And in light of those things, I, I want to give you a few practical takeaways before we close that you can apply to your life today. And I really pray that these encourage you. So if you're taking notes, get ready to write this stuff down. Takeaway number one is this. What do we learn from Peter's story? Well, we learn first that Jesus always restores repentant people. That Jesus always restores repentant people. And I want to be really clear here on what I mean by repentant people. Because I, I know some of us might be tempted to look back at the text and go, oh, well, when Peter broke down and cried, that's repentance. No, it's not. That's not repentance at all. Um, breaking down and crying might be a way that a person expresses repentance. But just feeling bad about something you've done is not repentance. Okay, to repent means to change your mind. You change your mind on sin, you change your mind on God, and that change of mind leads to a change of direction in life. Uh, instead of continuing to pursue sin and, and running from God, you start to run in the opposite direction. You leave sin behind and you start pursuing him. And so if you really want to know whether or not you are a repentant person, the question to ask is not, do I feel bad about what I've done? The question to ask is this. Where do I run when I feel broken over sin? And I want to illustrate the question for you if I can, okay? Uh, Matthew 27. Uh, there's a story there about Judas, the, the disciple who sold Jesus out to these religious authorities. 
In the Gospel of Matthew, we read that after Judas saw that Jesus was condemned to death, Matthew uses this language, look, that Judas changed his mind. It's interesting. In other words, Judas started to realize what I did was really wrong. And he started to feel really bad about it. So bad that he took the money he had been paid and actually gave it back to the religious leaders. But here was his problem. As bad as Judas felt, he never truly repented. Instead of turning from his sin and turning to Jesus, which I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if Judas the betrayer would have turned to Jesus, Jesus would have forgiven that man who sold him out. You get that. Instead of turning from his sin and running to Jesus, Judas kept on running from Jesus, and he went and took his own life and died trapped in his own guilt and shame. Peter responded much differently. There's this beautiful story in John chapter 21. It takes place after Jesus' resurrection. I would encourage you to read it on your own time this week. Uh, But the, the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing, and they're not catching anything. And if you love to fish like I do, you know how frustrating that is, right, to be on the water and not be pulling in any fish. Well, Jesus shows up on the shore, and at first, none of the disciples know that it's him. And he says, hey, guys, uh, fishermen out there, why don't you throw your net on the other side of the boat? Now, listen, in, in this culture and to those fishermen, that would have sounded ridiculous. Dude, if we're not catching anything here, I don't think we're going to catch anything here, right? But for some reason, they do it. They haul the nets up, throw it on the other side of the boat, and all of a sudden, they catch a ton of fish. And that's when John realizes it's Jesus. It's him. And he says to Peter, Peter, it's the Lord. Well, do you know how Peter responds? He doesn't say to the rest of the disciples in the boat, hey, boys, get the paddles ready. We got to get out of here. That's him, and and I denied that brother a few nights ago. I'm so ashamed. I can't face him right now. I just need to leave. Now, you know what Peter does? He basically throws on his coat, and he dives into the sea, and he just swims to Jesus. And Jesus goes on in that passage to restore Peter. Look at me. That's repentance. Repentance is when you allow the brokenness of your sin to drive you to the Lord, not from him. See, Romans chapter 2, verse 4 tells us, don't miss this, please, that it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And so I just want to say to you, and I would encourage you and challenge you with this today, if you showed up and there's sin in your life that you feel so ashamed over, sin that's causing you to live every day under this uh, uh, this weight of guilt and condemnation, I just want to say to you, don't you dare run from the Lord. You run to him. And you run to him, look, because you know he's going to be kind to you. You run to him because you know he's going to be good to you. You run to him knowing that Jesus loves you and his desire is to free you from that sin in your life and to restore you back to himself. Jesus always restores repentant people. That's first. The second thing we learn from Peter's story is this, that Jesus specializes in using unusable people. He specializes in using unusable people. Can we all agree today, like let's tell the truth in church, okay, Um, if Peter's story stopped here in Mark chapter 14 and we knew nothing else about the guy, wouldn't we all assume that God would never use a guy like that, right? I mean, come on, why would God God use a guy who failed Jesus like that, called a curse down upon himself? Yet, when you keep reading the Bible, you get through the end of the Gospels, 
and you get into the book of Acts, and then you start finding, oh my gosh, there's a first Peter and a second Peter in my Bible. Did God really let that guy write some books of the Bible? Like you start learning that God not only used him, but he called him to be the leader of his church. I mean, in Acts chapter 2, after God pours out the Holy Spirit on his people, and all these weird things start happening that people weren't used to. People are speaking in other languages, and people who speak that language are hearing it, the gospel in their language, and nobody knows what's going on. And Peter stands up and goes, I'll tell you what this is about. Um, this is about Jesus, him crucified, him resurrected, him ascended to the right hand of God. And Peter, the denier, goes on to preach one of the most famous gospel messages in the history of the world. And 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus and get baptized all in a single day. Listen up. I share that to say this. I share that to say this. If you walked in the doors today and you think you're unusable, like you're looking at your life and you're going, oh, I don't deserve to be used. I'm not worthy. Um, I've got a past. There's all this, all this history back here. There's this sin in my life and I still struggle at times. Why would God ever want to use a person like me? I want to say today as your pastor lovingly but very assertively, stop it. Just Stop. That attitude that exists in you right now is not from the Lord, it's from the enemy. You see, God's grace and his power is greater than your sin, your failures, your past, your shortcomings, your weaknesses. God can use a person like you. And not only can he, but he wants to. And the reason God wants to use a person like you is because when he does, he's the one who gets all the glory. I mean, think about this with me. People who know that apart from Christ, they're unusable, never sit around and talk about how awesome they are, do they? Let me tell you about how gifted I am. Let me tell you what I'm doing for the kingdom. Let me tell you how many people I led to Jesus last year. I mean, people who know that apart from him, they're unusable, all they can do is talk about how great Jesus is. I can't believe that he would love someone like me. Why would he save me? Why would he give me gifts so that he could use me? And all they do is spend their lives shining the spotlight back on Jesus so that other people can see his greatness. He specializes in using unusable people. And then finally, the third takeaway is this, and this may be my favorite. What do we learn from Peter's story? That Jesus removes shame from ashamed people. That he removes shame from ashamed people. If you are newer to our church and you haven't been here for this series, uh, I told our church very early on that the gospel of Mark is really the gospel of Peter. Uh, John Mark, the author of Mark, was Peter's assistant. And it's believed that Peter actually told Mark what to write. Hey, bro, I'm going to give you uh, an account of Jesus. Write it down. And so I just want you to think about this. There actually came a point in the process where Peter says to John Mark, "Um, I want to tell you what I did the night before Jesus went to the cross. The night before the Savior of the world was put to death, I denied him three separate times. And and Mark, I didn't just deny him. Like, dude, I, I said to God that he could kill me if I was lying about being one of his guys. This is crazy, isn't it? I mean, oftentimes when we sin or we fail Jesus in some way, that's the last thing we do. We're not quick to confess what we've done. We try to cover it up. We try to hide it. Why? Because we're ashamed, and that's what shame does to people. Shame sends people into hiding. 
And if you don't confess what you've done, your shame will keep you there. And the longer you're in hiding, the greater and greater and greater your shame will become. What I love about our boy Peter is he's hiding nothing at this point in his life. He very openly and unashamedly shares with the world his greatest failure. Tells Mark, write it down so that people throughout history can read about it. And I would argue that in doing so, he proves this. That when Jesus restored him, he also removed every ounce of shame that he felt as a result of his denial. And can I tell you the really good news? Jesus still offers to do the same thing for people like us today. Like you realize at the cross 2,000 years ago that Jesus not only paid the penalty of your sin, but he also bore the shame associated with your sin so that your shame today could be removed. Which means if, if you've been forgiven by Jesus, you know him as Savior and Lord, there's no reason for you to keep beating yourself up, up over stuff you've done. Like Jesus was beat up at the cross for you so that you wouldn't have to keep beating yourself up. There's no reason to keep your sins and your failures in the dark. The invitation instead is this, to come out of hiding and to boast in Jesus Christ, him crucified, him resurrected, and to share openly and unashamedly what he's done to set you free. I need you to understand today, your story of redemption matters. But James, what if I don't have it all together? None of us do. You think I've got it all together? You think, I, you think I don't struggle still today? You don't think there are temptations in my life that threaten to take me out all the time? Like, come on, we all fail. We all struggle. But do you know, one of the keys to overcoming struggles is to name those struggles out loud. To say to someone else, here's where I'm weak, but here's where the Lord has been strong for me. Or here's where I'm weak, and here's where I need the Lord to be strong for me. Your story matters so that other people who are still far from God and stuck in shame know and believe that God can do for them what he's done for you. Listen, I have to believe today that there are some of us in this room who need to be set free from shame. Some of us probably need Jesus to restore our brokenness in some way. Some of us probably need help believing that God could actually use a life like ours. And so the simple invitation today for us is this. Uh, I want us to pray in the next few moments and to ask Jesus to work in our lives in whatever way we might need. And so will you join me in prayer right now? Just heads bowed, eyes closed all over the room. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come get in their places. As our prayer team comes, I'm, I want to speak for a moment to those of you in the room who walked in today without a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you're that person who just has this general belief in God, but you've never put your faith in Jesus as God. There's never come a point for you where in faith, you have cried out to him to save you, to restore you, to make you a new person, to free you from those things in your life that are holding you in bondage. You've never asked Jesus to remove shame, guilt, condemnation, to change your life, to give you an eternity with him. I would imagine if you are that person, you probably showed up today with some shame or guilt weighing heavy on you. There are probably days where you wonder what, what life's about, and I would imagine as well that a lot of the time you lack a, a certain joy and peace that 
you thought you could find in this world, but it hasn't been able to give it to you just yet. I just want to say to you, if that's you, Jesus loves you. He loves you. One of the reasons he kept his mouth shut during that trial was so that court would condemn him to death and he could go on to die in your place for your sins so that you could be forgiven and accepted by God for eternity. So if you need to put your faith in Jesus today, trust in him. I would invite you right now where you're sitting, why don't you just say something like this in faith? Just say to him, Jesus, I believe you're God. And I believe you're the only one who can save me. Jesus, I believe that you gave up your life on the cross for me to pay for my sins. That you rose from the dead to defeat sin, death, and hell forever for me. And Jesus, I'm asking, would you change my life? Would you give me hope? Would you make me a new person? Take away my shame? Jesus, give me eternal life with you. I say yes to you as my Savior and my Lord. So now I want to ask you to do me a favor if you just prayed that with me with heads bowed and eyes closed still all across the room. If you just prayed that or, or something like that with me, I want to ask you, would you right now in this moment acknowledge the fact that you made that decision by just lifting a hand? Wherever you are, just throw your hand up real high. Thank you so much. I see hands going up already. I want to ask you, if you keep them up for just a moment, our prayer team is going to place a resource in your hand. And as soon as you receive it, you can put your hand back down. Anybody else? James, that's me. Put my faith in Jesus today. Put my faith in Christ today. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. God, thank you for loving us like you do. Thank you that while we were still sinners, you sent your one and only son to die for us. To restore us, to change us, to give us hope. To open up the way for us to know you as our good and loving father. God, I want to thank you right now for all these men and women who just put their faith in you. Thank you for being a God who saves. I pray that right now, even in this moment, they would begin to feel your presence in in a life-changing way. God, would you continue in the next few moments to work in our lives in whatever way we might need. And God, we trust you for it. We love you so much. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.